Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, uh, a little thing I'm calling Get Real, Mr. Morrison, and uh, Ukrainian singer Alina Vinitskaya will go stargazing, and Siraj Bijahali describes an augmentation system for navigating reusable space vehicles. And Belinda Nicholson has thoughts on using stars as proxies for studying the sun's early history. And we have episode 41 of our Planet Earth series. Well, first up then, Space Show News. On Friday, the federal government promised an extra $65 million into the Australian space industry. $32 million of that will be co-invested in the development of up to three spaceports. In making this promise, Prime Minister Scott Cole Morrison went on to make this astonishing claim. We are an astronaut nation in getting Australians back into space as part of these initiatives. So very exciting. Very exciting indeed. <laughs> but then Stephen Marshall, who was the South Australia or is the South Australian Premier, made this statement. Not even the sky is the limit in creating and opening up opportunities for our children and our grandchildren. Well, that statement, we are an astronaut nation and getting Australians back into space. Note that word back. <laughs> well, I'm afraid uh, Mr. Morrison is a little over-enthusiastic on this issue. First up, we've had no Australian astronauts. Yes, Australian-born people have been into space. So what's the history of Australian government-backed astronauts in space? Well, Flight International, 1983, January the 8th, that issue said, quote, Australia has been offered the chance to fly an astronaut aboard Space Shuttle when it launches OSAT-1 or 2 in 1985. Then, on October the 8th of that same year, flight had this statement, a major customer can expect to pay just over $1.5 million to fly a man on a shuttle. About half a million of this goes on training and the rest represents the cost of flying 450 kilograms of consumables typically needed to support the extra person. The article went on to say, apparently NASA has offered to pay for the flight of an Australian astronaut as part of the offset for OSAT 1 and 2 flying aboard the shuttle. And that uh, article in the Flight magazine was 
confirmed by a NASA release number 83-204 on 1983 December the 30th. Well, as it happened, OSAT-1 flew in August 27th of 1985 and OSAT-2 on November the 27th of that same year. But there was no Australian astronaut aboard. <laughs> For some reason, the Aussies said, no, no, not interested. That's what the Australian government said at the time. An Australian-born person did fly before the OSAT satellites. This was Paul Scully Power, who was an Australian but became a United States citizen in 1982. And uh, two years later, in 1984, October the 5th, STS-41G was launched. That was the 13th space shuttle with Paul Scully Power aboard. But he was not going for Australia. He was going as a U.S. citizen there. So he'd been doing, and he was doing their oceanographic research. Well, let's move on. 1985, October the 26th, Flight Magazine says, and I quote, Australia's first shuttle payload specialist set to fly in 1987 will be from the armed forces and not a civilian scientist as originally thought. Australia's payload specialist will work on space trials of the Endeavour ultraviolet photon detector developed by Mount Stromlo Observatory. So it looked like uh, in 1986 or thereabouts we might get an Australian astronaut. But no, because on 1986, January the 28th, STS-51L with the Space Shuttle Orbiter Challenger exploded on liftoff and as a result NASA changed its astronaut rules. So what about this statement again? We are an astronaut nation in getting Australians back into space as part of these initiatives. So very exciting. Sorry Mr Morrison, Australia is not an astronaut nation. Besides, what you promised was to investigate putting an Australian into space, not to actually do so. That would require a lot more money. And also to Stephen Marshall. Not even the sky is the limit in creating and opening up opportunities for our children and our grandchildren. Ah, our children and grandchildren. Well, 1988 May, COSA Space Industry News said, Because of the enormous cost involved, the Australian government would be unwilling to support an Australian cosmonaut unless the potential for concrete, identifiable scientific benefits from such a project could be demonstrated. On May the 3rd of 1988, The Age had this to say, the Soviet Union has officially offered an Australian astronaut a place on a Soviet space mission. The offer was made yesterday at a meeting between officials from the Department of Industry, Technology and Commerce, which incorporates the Australian Space Office 
and the vice chairman of the Soviet space agency, Glav Cosmos, by Vyacheslav Dukov. The Soviet agency would train the Australian to fly Soviet spacecraft. That quote from The Age. Also in May of 1988, CNC Space and Satellite News, an Australian publication, said that Senator John Button, Minister for Industry, Technology and Commerce, confirmed the invitation had been made. Well, Australia turned down that invitation as well. So, what about this uh, statement by the South Australian Premier about getting young people involved in space flight? Well, (laughs) here's the sad news. To date, the youngest person to fly to the space station, the International Space Station, for a female is 30 years of age. And for a male, the age, the minimum age is 34. The median age, the average age, if you like, the median age for a female is 43 years old. And for a male, the median age is 46 years old. The youngest commander of the space station was Russian Sergei Volkov, who was aged 35 at the time. So I'm afraid that if you're a young Australian, unless um, the Australian Space Agency trumps up a fair bit of money and um, sets some precedent, uh, (laughs) you've got to wait a fair while before you end up going into space. Now, we don't normally mention astrology on the space show, Astronomy, yes, but not astrology. Well, we're going to make an exception tonight because Alina Vinaskaya is a singer, television presenter on the music channel called Biz TV, and later on Inter. She's also an author and a radio presenter, and she was born in 1974. She was born in Kiev. In Ukrainian, her name is Alona, but in Russian, it's Alina, and she has been performing under the Russian stage name. Anyway, we have a a song by her. It's called Stargazer, brackets, Astrologer. Ночной господин, ночно пролет, наблюдает он с трепетом, каждую знает и помнит в лицо, их называет ночными 
Faring well in these troubled times in uh, the Ukraine. On FM, online, and on TuneIn, twenty-four-seven. This is eighty-eight point three Southern FM. And you're listening to the Space Show. When I spoke with Suraj Bijahali a few years ago, he was a PhD candidate at RMIT University. And he has an idea about an augmentation system for navigation of reusable space vehicles. Welcome to the Space Show. Thank you. You've been doing some interesting work here at RMIT. What is it? Right. So my research proposal here at RMIT under my supervisor is to develop an early warning system in case GPS goes wrong for space vehicles in higher Earth orbits. So how a space vehicle can kind of identify whether the GPS signal it's, it's getting uh, is trustworthy or whether it's uh, full of errors. 
So we're trying to design an early warning system for that. Um, so what we're doing is we're developing a lot of mathematical models to kind of identify how wrong GPS could be potentially in, in, in high Earth orbits. So that's the whole thing in a nutshell, I would say. So the global positioning system is not totally reliable? Uh, not necessarily. Um, most atmospheric flights, like the flights we are used to, happen within a very uh, within 3,000 kilometers from the Earth's surface. Uh, you have a bunch of errors in that zone, but you also have errors if you're if you're in a spacecraft that's above the GPS satellites as well. Uh, How high are the GPS satellites? The GPS satellites are at 20,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Um, so if a spacecraft is at a comparable height, or if it's slightly higher up than that, uh, then the problems that it experiences with GPS are very different from the problems that um, like a normal flight would experience with GPS systems. Uh, so we're trying to model the errors that happen in, that kind, in those kinds of flights. Uh, that's what's here on the poster. And so how accurately can a satellite in space... Uh, know its position using GPS? Um, well, on Earth, with normal standard GPS on your cell phone, uh, it would be anywhere in the range of 5 meters to 10 meters. Uh, you get somewhat similar results in space, but it actually does get a little better because there's not that much interference in space as there is on the ground. Uh, there are fewer objects for the signal to bounce off of in space. Um, so you do get it is possible to achieve within the range of three meters or so. Uh, but the whole point of our research is you need to know that the signal you're receiving has an error in it, and you can't directly tell just by looking at the signal. So we're trying to infer whether there is an error in the signal or not. And uh, what sort of uh, spacecraft could be using this system? Uh, so... For a case study, we've looked at the SL-12. It's a reusable space vehicle. Um, I was fortunate enough to get the dynamics for that from the previous research uh, that my supervisor did. Uh, we've only done one case study so far. But yeah, we, do, we are aiming to uh, simulate other spacecraft as well. And the satellites that would be used, are they just the American uh, Navstar GPS or are they the Russian system and the Chinese system and the uh, European? Uh, well, the approach we're following could potentially be tailored for any of those constellations as well. Uh, we would have to vary the models a fair bit considering um, maybe bandwidth. and, uh, But yeah, it is possible. The same approach is definitely possible. So it's not exclusively GPS. And, and what is your role here at RMIT? Uh, well, I'm a PhD candidate. I just started uh, my, my, <laughs> my PhD about three weeks ago. Um, yep, in aerospace. And what were you doing before that, three weeks ago? Oh, three, three weeks prior to that. Um, but I was doing my master's degree here at RMIT, uh, where I met my supervisor. Um, so, yeah, so his work seemed interesting. So I decided to get on board. That's and what other projects do you think you might be working on as you do your PhD? Uh, well, a whole range. I'm definitely interested in working on unmanned vehicles, um, both aerial vehicles and ground vehicles. Um, so possibly artificial intelligence might come into the equation. Uh, but yeah, that is, that is what I'm looking at. GPS navigation guidance is uh, 
would be a part of that uh, for unmanned vehicles. And your ultimate career um, ambition? Um, I'd like to become a full-time a full-time researcher um, in navigation and guidance, uh, especially unmanned navigation and guidance. So yeah, that is that is the dream, I would say. Yeah, but it's still a long way to go at this point. Well, thanks, uh, Siraj, for joining us on the Space Show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. That was Siraj Bijahali, as you heard. He, at the time, was a PhD candidate at RMIT University right here in Melbourne, where you are listening to the Space Show. And we're now going to hear from Belinda Nicholson, who... At the time I recorded this, uh, was a PhD student at the University of Southern Queensland. And she's talking about stars as proxies for studying the sun's early history. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Belinda Nicholson. I'm a PhD student at the University of Southern Queensland. My talk today is a little bit further out uh, from where we've been hearing about. Uh, I study stars other than our sun. And I study young stars uh, because there's a lot to learn about them. And we can learn stuff about our sun and our solar system by studying these young stars. So we know that the sun, uh, when it was quite young, was very active. And we, ha we know from evidence from Mars that it once had a thick atmosphere, and that atmosphere is thought to have been blown away by the young sun. But if we want to understand more about what our young sun was like, we need to look at other stars, look at other stars that are similar mass to our sun, but younger. And we want to see how they behave, what their spots are like, whether or not they've got flares, what their magnetic fields are doing, and also trying to detect planets around these stars as a, a way of informing our understanding of planetary evolution. But what do I mean by young? Where exactly am I talking in terms of stellar evolution? the vague stages of the evolution of a star like our sun. So it starts off as there's gas in a stellar nebula. This gas collapses, forming a protostar, eventually forming a main sequence star where it spends most of its time, most of its life, before eventually becoming a, a red giant and a white dwarf at the end. I should stress that these stages at the start and end are very, very quick compared to the main sequence. But this young star stage can be split up into several stages. You have the, the gassy protostar, where you can't really see the star yet. It's too shrouded in gas and dust. It evolves a bit more. The gas and dust forms a disk. Eventually, it clears enough that you can see the star, but it's still accreting. There's a whole lot of matter falling onto the star. There's a lot of gas. And then eventually, you get to this stage here called the weak line Titori stage where most of the gas has been cleared away and you're left with being able to see the star in the center and we can really observe it with this optically thin disk, debris disk around it. So at this stage, the Jovian planets will probably have been formed, but it'll still be forming terrestrial planets. So this is the stage that I, wanna, I want to explore further. So how do I observe these stars? Um, I use two techniques to get an understand of how, understanding of how they behave. I use uh, Doppler imaging and Zeeman Doppler imaging. Uh, both of these techniques require high-resolution spectroscopy or spectropolarimetry. 
Uh, and we do use uh, ground-based optical telescopes for this, usually about four-meter class telescopes and above. So getting just normal intensity spectra, but also including a circular polarization uh, measurement as well in the spectra. So first up, we have Doppler imaging. I should say first what we do when we have our uh, spectroscopy, when we take our high-resolution spectra, in order to increase our signal to noise, we want to combine as many absorption lines that we see in that spectra into one mean line profile so we can increase our signal to noise. Now, as the star rotates and you see spot features on the star, these spot features will change the shape of your absorption line profile. So here we have our intensity spectra, our mean line, and as this, this cool spot on the surface of the star, as the star rotates around, we see this change in the shape of our profile. So in order to then sort of backtrack and then map the surface of this star, we take multiple observations as the star rotates. So this particular star, TWA9A, a 20 million year old star that's about the same size as the sun in mass, a little bit bigger, so it's not as evolved. Uh, and as, we, as it rotates, we take multiple observations, and you can see, even in this, that you've got the shape of the line changing. And then from that, we can reconstruct what the surface brightness looks like. And in this particular version, not only are we, construct, we reconstructing cool, dark spots, but we're also reconstructing hot spots as well, hot, bright surface features. So that's what you see here. This is a big, hot, bright surface feature. And here is a region of cooler, darker features. Now, I should stress that this is a fairly low resolution that we can do with these stars. We can't really get the, the fine, small scale structure that you can see on the sun. So from the sun, it would look fairly blank with this technique. So it's sort of just an average. And here, there's generally brighter areas in this region and generally darker areas in this region. But one of the exciting things that this allows us to do is it helps us to find planets by being able to characterize the surface brightness variations. Because surface brightness variations are very annoying for trying to detect planets, uh, particularly with the radial velocity method, so detecting the, the wobble back and forth of a, of a star. So yeah, the surface brightness variations interfere with our ability to measure the radial velocity. But by being able to characterize just how that surface brightness variations change our radial velocity measurements, we're able to subtract them off. And that's what's happened here. So this, again, is TWA9A, the star I showed previously. Uh, the red points are the observations. The green points are the characterization of the, um, the way activity is, is altered, the radial velocities. And then we get these residuals here, which are relatively flat. Um, so, yes, sadly for me, no planet around this star. But this technique has been shown to work. So my collaborator, Jean-Francois Donati et al., were able to find a nearly fairly large Poisson planet around a two-million-year-old star. So this is one of the youngest planets ever found in this, this really young stellar system and really reduce the, the sort of noise that you get in the radial velocity due to the activity of the star, they're really able to beat that noise down and find this planet. So it's very exciting being able to get an idea of what these young planetary systems are doing. So next on to Zeeman Doppler imaging. So this is what we use to 
map the large-scale magnetic fields of these stars, again, fairly low resolution. Uh, this little cartoon shows the polarization spectra. Again, this is sort of, we've taken a mean of all our lines, and then we've taken the uh, amount of circular polarization above the intensity, overall intensity. And you can see, so this is the radial magnetic field. You've got a radial magnetic field spot coming across our, our line of sight as the star rotates, and you get this characteristic signature. And then with the azimuthal magnetic field, so radial, you've got magnetic field coming straight out, azimuthal, it's going around, and then the other component is meridional, which is sort of up and down like that. So they have different signatures that's characteristic of the type of magnetic field that they are. And again, by taking a whole lot of these, as the star rotates, we're able to reconstruct the large-scale surface magnetic field. So that's all very interesting here, the radial, azimuthal, and meridional magnetic fields. Now, it's very interesting for stellar astrophysicists because it's like, ooh, what are these young stars doing? How is their dynamo behaving? What role is accretion played? But I'm not so interested in that personally. I think there's something else exciting that we can do with these magnetic field maps, and that is use them to model the young star space weather. So using them as input to a three-dimensional magnetohydrodynamic simulation. Um, the one particularly that I will be using is called Batsaras, which you've just heard about. Um, this image here is from uh, uh, my paper released this year. Uh, this is a main sequence star called Tau Brutus. Um, so this is just an idea of the type of simulations that we do. We really sort of strip back as many parameters as we can because we don't have as much information for these stars as we do for the sun. So stripping it back, taking it back to the main basic MHD engine. But yes, so future work for this will be to apply this code to the young star and then see what sort of space weather we get in these young planetary systems. And then complementary to that, we can also try and measure the space weather. So taking X-ray observations and taking UV observations to get an idea of flaring on these stars to try and infer a CME rate, to then sort of infer what sort of environment are these young planets forming in, what will they be bombarded with. So in summary, studying young stars can help us understand the solar system, how it formed, and also, when we're looking for other planetary systems, understanding what sort of environment they're going to be in. We can use Doppler mapping not only to understand the activities of these young stars, but also help us to find young planets. Additionally, we can use Zeeman Doppler imaging to map the large-scale magnetic field, not only to help us understand stellar physics and to understand how these young stars work, dynamo models and such, but also to inform space weather models and infer what sort of, again, what sort of environment these, these young planets might be in. And then combining that also with X-ray observations to get a total view of, of young planetary space weather. Thank you. Thanks for that, Belinda. Uh, does anyone have any, any questions for Belinda? I was just wondering, uh, you were going to model the space weather but young stars are surrounded by disks. 
disks of gas and dust. Can you somehow put that in your code and model that as well? So that's the advantage of doing weak line tutorials is that there's no gas. A lot of the inner disk is gone. So the disk that will be there will be really quite far out um, debris disk. So you don't actually see the disk at all except maybe in some infrared. But yeah, generally speaking, you don't, especially well in your optical observations, you don't see, see any presence of the disk. Thank you. Very interesting. So have you been able to get long enough stretches of data to be able to determine, for instance, the rotation axis of the star in, in 3D relative to the Earth? and then study the variations in sunspots over you know, a number of rotations? Not for these stars. There has been ongoing studies of uh, star spot variations in some of the main sequence stars, so the Be Cool uh, collaboration. They've been looking at, I mean, not young stars, but main sequence stars, looking at doing sort of long-term monitoring. The, the problem with a lot of this is that it's very intensive telescope time. I mean, those observations, that was 14 observations over 14 consecutive nights. And that is very, it's, it's expensive. It's expensive telescope time, especially when it's, there, it's a fairly niche area. There's one spectropolar, high-resolution spectropolarimeter in the southern hemisphere, and there are two in the northern hemisphere. So it's, it's kind of tricky to get enough telescope time to really do, and to be able to map the spots, you need to have consecutive observations. So thankfully, through Be Cool, with Naval instrument on Telescope Bernard Leo in, in France, yes, they've been able to have enough time to do multiple observations. In fact, if you look at the Tau Buddhist uh, paper that I mentioned, a paper that sort of ties in with that by Matthew Mengel, he does a paper on an eight-year study of this star where for eight years they went back twice a year to look at... Um, actually, no, it's probably less than... It was eight observations over a number of years where they went back, would map it, and then a few years later come back and map it again. So there's lots of... It's a very well-studied star, so it's... Yeah, there's a few things happening with that one. Speaking at the 16th Australian Space Science Conference at RMIT University... That was Belinda Nicholson, who at the time was a PhD student at the University of Southern Queensland. This is The Space Show. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless, calling, calling home. Welcome to episode 31 of our Planet Earth series in which we look at our home planet. Now we don't often pop over to India but uh, they've got a whole series of Earth observation satellites including ones doing cartographic work that is map making. So uh, this feature from ISRO uh, has the history of the PSLV rocket, uh, leading to the launch of 20 satellites on a single rocket, and a description of the cartographic satellite number two. The development of launch vehicle technology began in the early 1970s in India, with the determination to achieve self-reliance in the area of being able to launch all class of satellites in the required orbits. 
An important milestone towards achieving this goal was the first experimental satellite launch vehicle, SLV-3, developed in 1980, which was capable of placing payload weighing 40 kgs in low Earth orbit. An improved version of this augmented satellite launch vehicle, ASLV, was successfully launched in 1992. ASLV was configured with a mission of orbiting 150 kg class satellites into 400 km circular orbits. ISRO further applied its energies to the advancement of launch vehicle technology, resulting in the creation of its workhorse, the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, PSLV. PSLV registered its first successful flight with PSLV D2 in October 1994. It was later operationalized in 1997 with the launch of PSLV C1. And in these more than 20 years, ISRO has perfected its regular operational launch capability with PSLV, thereby mastering rocket science. With 34 consecutive successful flights, PSLV has proved itself to be one of the world's most reliable launch vehicles. It has made India self-reliant in launching satellites weighing up to 1,750 kgs into the polar orbit and 1,425 kgs to geosynchronous transfer orbit. PSLV has launched various historic missions like Mars Orbiter Mission, Chandrayaan-1, Space Capsule Recovery Experiment, Indian Regional Navigation Satellite System, IRNSS, etc. For the very first time, PSLV-C2, by launching three satellites, demonstrated multiple satellite launch capability. Since then, 17 missions of PSLV have launched multiple satellites in a single mission. In 2008, PSLV created record for most number of satellites placed in orbit in one launch by launching 10 satellites into various low Earth orbits. At the end of June 2016, PSLV C-34, in its 35th consecutive launch, will again make history by launching 20 satellites in a single mission. The vehicle is carrying four micro-Earth observation satellites weighing 85 to 130 kgs, each belonging to foreign agencies. M3MSAT of Canada will collect and study automatic identification system signals from low Earth orbit. Skysat Gen 2.1 of USA is for Earth imaging. Lapan A3 of Indonesia is for Earth observation, for land use, natural resources and environment monitoring. Bayros of Germany will monitor and study the high temperature events of the Earth. The rocket is also carrying 15 nanosatellites weighing 4 to 30 kgs each, which includes Canada's Earth observation satellite GHGSAT-D, three quad packs containing 12 Dove satellites from USA, and two student satellites, one each from Satyabhama University and Pune Engineering College. Overall, the PSLV C-34 mission is launching 17 satellites of foreign agencies, including those from US, Canada, Germany and Indonesia. The PSLV C-34 mission is launching ISRO's latest cartographic satellite, which is fourth in the series of satellites. 
As a follow-on mission, it will provide high-resolution images in panchromatic and multispectral bands. The satellite carries four cameras, which were designed, fabricated, assembled, and tested at Space Application Center, SAC, Ahmedabad, while the optics for the cameras were provided by Laboratory for Electro-Optic Systems, LEOS, Bengaluru. Both the panchromatic and the multispectral cameras provide continuous imaging. Panchromatic camera takes grayscale pictures of the Earth in the visible region of the electromagnetic spectrum. The multispectral camera will provide data for color images using four bands of the electromagnetic spectrum. Space Applications Center has developed new technologies in detection systems, camera electronics, including power electronics and miniaturization of mass and volume. The spacecraft has been designed, integrated and tested by ISRO Satellite Center, ISAAC. The spacecraft's onboard computer, sensor processing, attitude and orbit control and thermal control functions, the power generation, communication systems and many others have been developed in ISAAC. Subsystems developed in other ISRO centers like inertial systems from IISU, reaction control systems from LPSC, and sensors from LEOS are brought to ISAAC where they are assembled and integrated into the spacecraft. The solar cells mounted on the solar panels generate the necessary power for the spacecraft. Lithium-ion batteries store the generated energy to support the spacecraft during payload operations and eclipse. The antenna systems of the spacecraft will transmit the recorded payload data from the spacecraft to ground stations. The data from the satellite will meet the increasing user demands for cartographic applications at village, town or sub-meter level for the development of various urban and rural resource management, coastal land use and regulation, utilities mapping, LIS, GIS, and disaster monitoring applications. Till now, PSLV has successfully orbited 33 Indian and 57 foreign satellites belonging to agencies of 21 countries. PSLV, with its capability of launching multiple satellites and in different orbits, is truly ISRO's most versatile launch vehicle. That feature from ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization. Well, that's it. For the space show this evening.